Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 30th, 2014, and you know what today is? It's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Uh, it's time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK, the THINK line. Uh, for those of you without letters on your number pad, whatever way you call in, that number is actually 866-658-4465. Again, 866-658-4465. You want to call in for a show like this? Remember, the show is pre-recorded, so you're going to get a, uh, like a voice message system. You're going to leave your call, and uh, there's about, I'd say at this point, 15 to 20% chance you'll end up on the air. <clears throat> Here's the rules for making a good call. Call from a quiet place. Call with uh, some good signal on your phone if you are on a cell phone. Speak clearly and loudly into the phone. Do not turn your head away from the phone like this when you're talking, and then back into the phone like that, and then back away from the phone like that, because then it's very hard to hear you, and I can only fix so many things on the phone. And uh, ask your question or make your point in 10 to 15 seconds. First 10 to 15 seconds. Then give me all your details and your call will go smoothly and you'll be more likely to get on the air. I've been saying this for years and apparently I'm getting through. You guys are killing it with the call-in formula now. I mean, the calls are great. Articulate, understandable. I know what your point or question is very, very quickly. There's good news and bad news about that. The good news is now when I screen calls, I go through like 12 to get 10 calls I can use. I used to go through like 20 or more to get 10. The bad news about that is less calls per total coming in are getting on the air. If you do not hear your call within one or two weeks of making it and you'd like your question answered, don't think you did a bad job. At this point, assume that you just didn't make the screening by numbers. Make your call again and you'll be likely to get on the air. Here's a secret. It's a secret. For those of you that don't skip the intro segment, it's a secret. It's a secret. Don't tell anyone. Lately, I've been screening the calls starting on the Friday morning that I'm doing the screening, meaning the people that call in later in the week have been more likely to get on the air. I'm not saying it'll stay that way forever, but it might for a while. So if you didn't call me to like Thursday evening of the week of the show, you might actually hear your call the next day. It's a secret. Don't tell anybody. Anyway, before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Hey, if you want to learn how to make knives and you have no idea where to start, go to KnifeKits. Get a kit, get a book, get a DVD. If you're really clueless, give them a call. Tell them you want some help, and they'll help you out. Um, they are a great supplier of really cool stuff. And, hey, if you just want to get into making Kydex stuff, they have an incredible assortment of Kydex. They even have some kits that help you know make your first couple of Kydex projects so you can learn more about doing it. They're just an awesome company. They're a longtime supporter of the show, and they give a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Check them out today, knifekits.com. Next up today, Harvest Eating. The awesome chef, Keith Snow, who will help you make cooking into a life skill. Chef Keith's seasonings are awesome. I just published a video where I did baby back ribs using his low and slow, and I added some brown sugar and paprika just to redden up the meat a little bit and put a little sweetness into it. 
Those ribs were awesome. I was using my new thing called the Smokinator. Thanks to the Smokinator, me and Chef Keith's low and slow mix are going to spend a lot more time together. Um, I'll tell you what, I love my sidebox smokers. Huge, big monstrosity. I can make like six briskets on it. It's cool. But I have to use as much fuel to make six briskets as make one, or two racks of ribs, or make a homemade pastrami, or so just smoke a small brisket flat as pastrami, or something like that. So I don't use it that much. The Smokinator has got me going, man. The Smokinator is an adapter that goes into a Weber 22-inch kettle grill. I guess I'm giving Smokinator a commercial instead of Chef Keith here, but I'm just telling you, man, it's awesome when you start to figure out how to piece all these things together and make really great food. Chef Keith can teach you how to be a great cook. He can make you as excited about cooking as I am about cooking, which is pretty excited. And uh, if you don't think cooking is a prepper survival skill, you've never lived on MREs for six months. I did. I can tell you, with 12 varieties of food in a brown bag, It gets old fast, and your chef creativity starts to come out really, really quickly. Uh, but check out Chef Keith Snow. Learn how to cook all of the great food we talk about growing here on the Survival Podcast. Cook seasonally and locally. Check out his YouTube channel, his podcast. He's awesome. Chef Keith, HarvestEating.com. Uh, next up today, let's take a look at the year in history. Episode 1357, so we're going to look at the year 1357, and I have an interesting take on this one as well. This is uh, put together by Alex Shrugged over at tspwiki.com, tspwiki.com, the preparedness wiki. The Magna Carta of Paris rejected. The Magna Carta is not from Paris, it's from England. Eh, you'll understand here in a second. The Black Prince has transported King John the Good to France, to England as a hostage. King John's son, Charles, has pulled a stunt that even the guys from Jackass the movie would find embarrassing. You can read yesterday's segment if you want to know what King, uh, or I should say, uh, the, the King's son, uh, Charles, did. Uh, the people of France are feeling a little uncomfortable with their government right now, so the elements of the French third estate, that'd be the lawyers, the merchants, the non-noble office holders, okay, so like the upper middle class, have pulled together another Magna Carta known as the Grand Ordinance. It is more of a correction of government than a revolution, but it will be rejected by the nobility in order to stop a revolution of the heir apparent. Charles the Wise has gone on a goodwill tour across France, meeting with people and letting them see the king is still in charge. It seems to calm the people down for a while. My take by Alex Shrugged. Alex says, remember that the nobility has recently agreed to a 4% tax on itself, imposed a 10% tax on the poor. Peasantry has been ripe for rebellion, and it has all been avoidable. Even the war was avoidable. In order to save money, several brigades have been released from service. These companies or brigades roam the countryside, sometimes being hired as guards and other times acting as bandits. This is where the English get the word uh, brigands, that is, brigades on the loose causing trouble. I have some thoughts on that myself here in a second, but I want to point out that we had this segment yesterday kind of tied into today's, and I said that I didn't think it was any more unfair to tax the poor 10% and the rich 4% than to do it the other way around and tax the rich at 10% and the poor at 4%. That it was simply treating everybody the same. And by treating anybody different, you were still being unfair. Taxes, theft, etc. Surprised. No one challenged me on that. Cool. Um, nobody said they agreed either. Just no response. I did not expect that. Anyway, um, here's my take on this. So... The French say we are out of money, 
and we're going to shake the pockets of the poor for 10%. And frankly, if you shake the pockets of the poor for 10%, it, it doesn't really add up to much. It's kind of a dumb move, really, because they're poor. They don't, they don't have any money. Um, and they're not going to pay, and especially at the time without electronics, you know, it's not really easy to make sure they all pay and know exactly how much they made and what have you. I guess you can tax the serfs on the you know, the nobility's land that they're managing because you know that, but, you know, any kind of side income is, you can hide that today, so how are they going to, you know, no money's going to come out. And, uh, you know, they tax the, uh, they tax the wealthy and they tax the middle class a little higher than the, the, the wealthy at like 5%. They get some money from them. And uh, when they're done with all that, they still don't have enough money. They're like, oh, we got to pay the army. And they're like, you know, like, let's just get some of these brigades that we're not using in active combat right now. We'll release them. If we need them, we can always call them back up. But this way we're not paying them while they're sitting around shining their boots or whatever they wore in 1357. Okay, so they do that. And then these guys that don't have a job anymore, but they have a skill. And that skill is beating shit out of people and killing people. Go out and they hire themselves out to beat the shit out of and kill people for money. And when no one wants to hire them, they just beat the shit out of and kill people and take their stuff. How does that relate to today? I think we need to think about some things that are going on in our country. First of all, this economy is in deep shit. I think we have some really interesting, positive things coming economically in the future and some really bad ones. And some of the bad ones are bad, bad, and some of the bad ones are good things that have bad manifestations. And I'm going to do a deep show on the economy next week because we haven't done it in a while uh, about some of the things that really concern me about our future economically. But one of the things I'll tell you that I see coming is a lot of people no longer having a job. And I don't mean unemployment. I mean job gone. Okay, you see, like a lot of the jobs that were lost in 2008 and 2009, and people keep waiting for them to come back, and I told you in 2008 and 2009, these, I said to you, these jobs are never coming back. They didn't go to China, they didn't go to India, they went away. Companies forced to make a difficult decision realized that large companies employing, let's say anybody with more than 500 employees or more, up to 50,000, realized, hey, look, 10% of these people are not critical to the operation of the company, and they went and got rid of them and leaned out the company. The companies returned to profitability even during a recession, just like I said they would. And I said they would post record profits, and they did. And those people now have to find a new thing to do because the jobs that went away were eliminated. They weren't exported They were eliminated because they realized as they grew through success over time, these companies had huge amounts of success, huge amounts of surplus, huge amounts of hiring, that there were people that were kind of in the middle mostly, not the bottom employee, not the top employee, the middle management and under middle management layer that was like, let's really examine these departments and see you know, if we got rid of this guy, would anything happen other than we'd make some space and his desk would go away? And when the answer was no, they got rid of it. It doesn't mean the guy was a bad guy. It means that inside that company, his role had become unnecessary or redundant. And that was the first wave of this. The second wave is a combination of the economy forcing those types of decisions again, but it's also demand for certain things being eliminated, like retail. Retail is a dying thing. In, in, in five years... 
most retail will be food. I will tell you within five years, I think, on the retail front storefront, if you take away, I think what will grow small retail type things, small point of sale things, like farms selling to direct to consumer and things like that. I'm talking about big box retail. I'll tell you that I think food will be more than the entire balance of retail combined in five years or less. Food is the only thing that people will still keep leaving their house to go get very, very soon. And that's even a massive decline. Have you checked out the gourmet section on Amazon? I mean, seriously, it's getting to the point now where anything you want can be delivered to your door for the same price or less than going to the store. So the retail crowd, the people that run the cash registers and all, they don't have a lot of training in how to shoot people and beat people up and provide security. So they're not a threat that way, but it's a great big segment of society. Do you know how many people are employed in retail sales positions? 4.6 million. About 4.6, actually closer to 5 million. Because in 2012, last concrete numbers I can get my hands on, um, the number of retail jobs went up by almost 500,000. So let's say 5 million people are employed in a retail industry. Um, half of them aren't going to be needed in five years. Half, minimum. The, the, the whole segment just pfft, dying. And people are becoming more and more comfortable buying things online that they normally weren't, like clothes. See, women have to try on 15 different clothes to buy one clothes. But all of these outlets have figured this out, and they're coming up with very liberal return policies, realizing that when the woman actually gets the clothing at home, unless it really doesn't fit or something, she probably won't bother to return it. So unless there's a real reason for return, and they have strict policies so they can sell the item again and all, and so that's you know going away. Jewelry was another one, and now there's ways with technology that you can actually look at the individual stone of the ring that you would buy and actually see it better than you would under the jeweler's loop and get independent verification. And I, it's just dying. The education market is going to radically shift to online learning um, with tens to hundreds of thousands of people without a job in the education sector. Uh, that's going to happen very, very swiftly, five to ten years. Major, major drop in the number of jobs in education, uh, especially conventional education as we've come to think of it. Uh, these are just going to – so the, the question then becomes what do all these people do? That's my take on this. Is it, so, what if we have a major drop-off in the number of employed police officers? That could actually kind of go like these brigands, couldn't it? I'm just saying. It, it could happen. It's probably not likely. It's probably one of the, the last places that employment will be cut because, well, we need to have all these guys out there to stop all the crime that's going to happen, and the police state has to keep growing, and you know they'll just squeeze a little more money out of us to keep those jobs going. But what are all these people going to do? Keep in mind, these aren't the people that you just write off without any thinking in your typical American arrogance and ignorance and not realizing there's plenty of people without a job that want a job and they're trying really hard. These aren't those people. These are people right now that are working. What are you gonna, what are we gonna do with all of them in the next five to ten years as their jobs like that? That's probably the speed at which jobs are being eliminated right now. By next year it'll be like this. 
What are we going to do? People are retiring in record numbers, but nowhere near enough to replace this. What about the fast food workers we heard about? You know, last week I was talking about, you know, they want a minimum wage of $15 an hour, and, a, and they want a union, and they want this, and they want that. Well, really? Okay, great. Okay. How's that going to work when the average person still wants their Big Mac for a buck or whatever it is? Well, there's going to be a robot that makes your Big Mac for you, and that person isn't going to, you know, they're not going to have to worry about whether they're being underpaid because they're not going to have a job. Right? And that's sad because the purpose of fast food jobs, especially at the non-managerial level, is not for a career. It's for a starting place. It's for a kid in high school that wants his first car whose dad is not a teacup maker and says, son, get your ass a job, save up some money, and when you're halfway there, I'll meet you halfway, we'll get a car together, you prove to me that you can, you know, pay for its maintenance and stuff. That's what, that's what, and you want to go get some experience and you'll learn what it's like to work and then you'll have something to put on your resume so you can get a better job. So go, go get a job at McDonald's or whatever. That's the purpose of that job. It's an entry level position. The franchises were built to capitalize on the fact that that was there. And now you got 45-year-old people working at McDonald's asking you if you want fries with that. And, it, it, you know, if you have to do it because you can't find another job, God bless you. But if you think, if, if you're there for 10 years and you're not managing at least a store, something's wrong. You're just not a very qualified employee. But at least it's there. It's not going to be. And as, I, as we look forward to next week when I'm going to go deep into some economic issues, I want you to start thinking about this. Stop worrying about all the people riding the welfare pony right now. And start asking yourself, what are we going to do with all of these hardworking Americans at varying skill levels from pretty much unskilled workers who are just willing to do something rather than sit on their ass, All the way up to very highly skilled workers and highly skilled in varying degrees in varying different industries. What, what are we going to do with these people? How can we possibly transform an economy built on consumption when we're moving into a place where job elimination is becoming the norm? Well, some real challenging things ahead for us and some exciting opportunities. Uh, but let's put that on the shelf for now and go ahead and take your first call this week. Oh, wait. Oh, got to say this for you. Um, I had some guys, after we did the interview with Wolf Combatives, uh, asking about Sistema, we had a little bit of conversation about that, and saying, would, would Valerie Asinoff consider coming here and into in, in our place and do a seminar here on Sistema, like a three- or five-day boot camp? I've talked with my old business partner, Neil. He's talked with Val. It looks like Val's going to be coming here in September anyway. Um, I want to do just an initial head count today. Okay, if you will email me, if you would like to do this and come, and you know enough about this already that you would just have some interest, and more details will follow and all, but it would probably not be cheap. Three to five days probably be 800 bucks to a thousand bucks a student. Um, you know, you're talking about a guy we have to bring in from the UAE, and every day he's here costs him money. He works for the Royal Guard of the United Arab Emirates, so he's not paid in like, you know, chicken soup or anything like that. He's he's very well compensated for what he does for those guys over there. And every day he's here is a dollar not being made there. Um, so he's he's expensive because he's the best in the world at what he does. 
And uh, I've already told Neil I want nothing for this. I'll just be a liaison to the audience. So I'm not doing this for anything on my end. I would just set it up um, and and they'll run it. I'd probably be there, but I mean, Val's a friend. Neil's a friend. It's kind of like me doing them a favor. It seems like there's an audience interest. So if you would be interested in attending a Sistema a workshop, a three- to five-day workshop in the Dallas-Fort Worth area with Valerie Asanoff, former member of the Russian KGB, uh, email me, jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com, and put uh, Val Seminar, V-A-L Seminar, two words, in the subject line. And if it looks like there's enough interest, we'll start going from there. All right, now let's take your first call. Hey, Jack. This is David B. from Florida. Um, my question to you is, how is it that our healthcare system has gotten so, I guess, just completely blown out of proportion? Um, I guess uh, the whole healthcare industry in general, uh, how has it become the great big monstrosity that it is today? Um, the reason why I'm asking is uh, my wife and I are about to have our second child in about six months, and we wanted to do the uh, home birth um, with that child, and uh, the midwife comes in around $2,900 um, for the midwife, and we tried to get her in my uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, network, but um, that didn't happen. They declined her from uh, from the network, um, but the, uh, the representative on the phone told my wife that, uh, that she just went to uh, a hospital and had a C-section that it would be, quote-unquote, cheaper to uh, to do that than to uh, have gone to a midwife. And I just can't conceive that, that, you know, you have like a half a dozen, you know, medically trained professional staff, not to mention, you know, the two-plus days in the hospital and this invasive medical procedure. And, and all this is less expensive than just having a midwife come to your house and, with no anesthesia or anything, deliver your baby. I don't know. I just don't know how <laughs> things have gotten so out of hand. But uh, anyway, just wanted to get your thoughts. Love the show. Um, hope you have a great day. Bye. That's like kind of asking, like, what's wrong with the world and wanting me to answer it in five minutes because there's so many things going on there. But let's try to look at a few of the components. Let's start out with C-sections. Um, I... I basically feel this way. The behavior of the medical industry of the whole in relation to C-sections is nothing less than criminal behavior and unnecessary scarring and wounding, and I would call it assault of women. Oh my God, how can you say such a thing, Jack? They're just doctors trying to help. No, bullshit. Um, 40 years ago, which, yeah, 40 years ago, way back in the 1902, when I was, uh, no, 40 years ago, <laughs> we're, we're not that far away from 40 years, guys. I'm in my 40s. We're talking about the 70s here. It was a civilized place. We had real hospitals and people went in and childbirths were generally handled pretty well in the 1970s. I got born okay. Most of you my age and older, you guys got born okay. Um, at the time, you guys that are around my age were born, uh, one in 20 births was done with a C-section. One in 20. Today, it's one out of three. It used to be one in 20. 
Today it's one in three. And I would say even when it was one in 20, because they had gotten pretty good at it by then, if the, the doctors were looking at it this way, if there's anything at all that could make this pregnancy go wrong, we'll just do this. So even by then, we had really increased the number of C-sections going on by the early 1970s, late 1960s. But at least it was like there was a reason for it. Do you know one of the re like I read a, a survey. I can't find it, obviously. It's been a while. But I have a memory that's pretty good. You'll have to trust me. The number one reason given by mothers as to why they were choosing to have a C-section was convenience. Convenience. They've basically been sold on the idea by the medical industry that, well, it works this way. Instead of just waiting for that stupid kid to come out on his own, in nature's own time, we, we know when he's done cooking, okay? We got this figured out, right? Nine months is nine months is nine months. And, you know, if he, if he comes out a week early, it's, it's not really premature. It's, he's fine. He's fine. You won't have to go through labor and stress, and it won't be inconvenient. You won't be sitting there for three weeks at the end, a week early, a week late. I don't know when I'm going to take up from work. When's grandma going to come in to help look after the kids? It's just a pain in the ass. So that's what we'll do. We'll just schedule a day that we know he's cooked enough, and we'll just pluck him out for you. We'll set up your appointment. You show up at the ER, or at the, you don't have to go to the ER or anything like that, or worry about getting checked in. You'll have an appointment. You show up at the hospital. We'll take you in. 8 o'clock in the morning, by 9.30 you'll be getting prepped, 10.30 they'll be wheeling you back, 11.30 kids popped out, you get some pain medicine, chill out in bed for a day, easy, easy peasy, no problem, next day you'll be going home, kid will be going home, he'll have all his immunizations provided by the state and all that stuff there, you'll be fine, we'll do the scar where your belly seam is, nobody will ever see it, it won't matter, it'll be easy. I think they should be required to tell these women, what we're going to do is we're going to slice a great big hole in your stomach, pull your abdomen apart, reach in and grab a kid that ain't ready to come out yet, yank them through the hole in your gut, and stitch your stomach shut because that's what they're doing. right? So why, why, why have we gotten here? It's convenient for the hospital, is number one. Then all these pesky women showing up wanting to have a baby on their own time. It's, it's much easier to schedule and keep beds open and all. And it's a formula. See, when you have a baby, you, you women are a pain in the ass. You understand this, right? Obviously, I'm being facetious. Nobody be upset with me. But I'm just in the industry looks at you. The whole medical industry sees women as a pain in the ass. On drug testing, it's a totally different thing. But if a drug is not specifically for women, do you know what? You women aren't allowed in the trials. You have too many variables. Seriously. Seriously. That's what Merck and Johnson. Yeah, that's a. So we don't even know how those drugs affect women until they're approved. Great, great stuff. Anyway, so you women are a pain in the ass. See, some of you, you come in, oh, I'm having a baby. And, like, you get on with it. 50 minutes later, you know, you're, you're popping out a baby. We got the baby. We smack his ass, tie the cord off, wipe him up, put you in bed with him, and you hold him for a while, and you take a nap, and we put him in the nursery, and the next day, Dad shows up and goes home. Some of you other women, you're a pain in the ass. The next day, when this chick's... Baby's going home. You haven't had your baby yet. You know, we have to induce labor. There's different variables. How do we build medical insurance? Ah, it's complicated. If you would all just get in line, let us slice your stomach over, open and pull a kid out, we could get this formula down. Then we can bill for surgery 
Yay! That's a big bill. But it'll be cheaper for you because what we're going to do is write a really big fat-ass bill to your insurance company, but then they get to pay the discounted rate. They get a good deal. They still make money. We still make a shitload of money because we've got this down to a science, man. We can pop these things out a couple dozen an hour, man. No problem. So even though we're billing this really big bill, we're still making a good profit. But what we're going to do is we're going to take part of this bill and say it's uncollectible and create a tax deduction with it. Yay! And then we're going to tell you it's cheaper, but by the time you get your bill, even though you had a deductible and all this stuff you thought was going to be cheaper, and we bill you like $47 for a Tylenol and all, you're really going to pay about the same or more than you would have for a midwife, but we'll give you a payment plan. And that pesky midwife, she wants to be paid up front. And hey, something could go wrong there. If you're here, you're in our shiny hospital where people don't ever get sick except for MRSA. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Did I say that? Oh, no. Well, more people get sick in a hospital than they do at home? More people die in a hospital and do at home? More people die in hospitals from illnesses they can contract while at the hospital than illnesses they went to the hospital for? Really? Oh, but don't pay attention to that. There you go. There's your answer. Because the hospital makes money and the insurance company makes money and it's more formulaic and it's what they want you to do. You notice I didn't have to bash Obamacare once for this? This is a problem that it's pre-Obamacare. Obamacare in the health industry is like salt in a wound. It makes it hurt more, but the wound is the problem. The whole medical industry is screwed and I'll tell you what the cause is. Some of you will flip your lid if you've never heard me say this before, but it is. Health insurance. Health insurance in its modern form and modern consumer expectation is the problem. Health insurance should exist to ensure life-saving primary care and to ensure against catastrophic loss. Basically, if you, your kid has a runny nose and he has to stay home from school and you kind of feel like, this is a little more than just a cold and I want the doctor to check him out and all, and the doc wants 70 bucks for it, you should pay 100% of that $70. Your insurance company should not pay a penny. There shouldn't even be insurance to cover something like that. There really shouldn't. Medical tests should be covered by insurance if they're required for diagnosis, not for covering the ass of the physician ordering the test and just making up a big bill. My wife was just in the hospital, ER, went down to a cash clinic, call care now, pay them up front, you know, no problem, reimburse from your insurance company if you want to file it. Real, real bad neck pains. Doc freaks out, says, man, we got to rule out meningitis, you need to go down to ER and get checked out. We go down to ER, they run a couple tests, she's there for about four hours, bill's $9,000. But your bill will be cheaper for a birth if you go get your stomach cut open and stay two days in the hospital. Bullshit. Somebody's paying for it, you're just paying for less of it. Personally, if I had all of my life to do over again, and I had home birth become an option for me, I would do it. Of course, I would leave that decision to my wife. She's the one that has to push a kid out. And some women want to have a C-section. If you want to do it, that's fine, but you should know what you're doing. You should know it's not a simple procedure. It's major surgery. It's something that the hospitals are really good at because they do so daggone many of them, but it's major surgery. It's major surgery that you don't have to have. Now, let me say this. I think if you have any type of a birth that is highly likely to cause complications and a C-section is a viable medical alternative, then by all means do it. And I think any good midwife would say, 
as I'm watching your pregnancy progress and conferring with your physician, um, I don't think you should do this one as a home birth. I think you might want to consider this. Because most, most people I've talked to that are midwives say there are births, I won't, I won't touch it. You can see it's not going the way it's supposed to and things are not working the way that they're supposed to and that's where, you know, the guy in the white shirt has to come in or the white, the white jacket has to come in and, and do his job and get paid the big bucks for what he does well. But in general, people are born every day all around the world and midwives are the ones who have done this for centuries, thousands of years even. And overall, they've done a pretty good job. Well, the human race wouldn't be here. So there's the best answer I can give you. Basically, the system exists to extract wealth from the people of the nation under the, the guise of making them healthy. We don't have a health care industry. We have a sick, and, uh, a sick and disease industry is what we have. The pharmaceutical companies are not trying to cure people. They're trying to invent new illnesses that they can treat for the life of the patient so that they can write a paycheck for themselves. And the medical insurance industry is the pig trough upon which the doctors, hospitals, and insurance companies feed. Um, or, I mean, and, and the doctors, hospitals, and pharmaceutical companies feed. Your problem is that insurance exists at all in its current form. When I saw in the 90s insurance evolve to the point where a whole family could get insurance for a few hundred bucks, and it was being paid for by their employer where they didn't have to pay nothing, Four-person four, four family, two kids, two adults. They go to the doctor anytime they want, and they had a copay of ten bucks. I knew then we were in for trouble, and we're just seeing the results of that today. Insurance is the problem. And the bad news is nothing will be done to fix it anytime soon. The problem will be far worse before the laws of mathematics require that it be fixed. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Mark from New Jersey. I got a question about lettuce. Um, when I go out and pick my lettuce, I just tear the le- I uh, cut the leaves off with the scissors, basically, and they grow back no problem, like they should. My wife went out the other day and picked some, and she just tore them off. Now her lettuce seems to be, or the lettuce she tears off seems to be growing back at a much quicker rate. Now, why is that? Just wondering. Thanks. Love the show. Have a great day. Well, I can speculate, but the real answer is I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that it really is. It might be and it might not. So here's the thing. You cut it like last Tuesday, and she comes out and cuts it like yesterday, and that's like a week apart, and that plant is in a totally different stasis part of its life, and it's much closer to the point where it's going to bolt and go to seed, so its growth is more rapid. So did it really grow back faster, or is it simply at a stage in its life that it's growing back faster? And we really don't know. And the only way I guess we could test this is to have plants that are side-by-side at the same age and have more than just two of them that we do in the same variety and cut one and pull the other and see if it's real. And it may very well be. Here's here's what I'm thinking as, as to why. When you cut your plant, you're leaving a lot of leaf relative to the base of the stem of a plant. Well, this will work with lettuce, spinach, anything like that. Because uh, you're going to cut it and leave a couple inches. Somebody that's tearing it is probably pulling the leaf off at the stem where it joins the main stem. So 100% of that leaf's ability to photosynthesize light is gone, where when you cut it, let's say 80% of it's gone. So the plant is able to get by with those cut pieces of leaf, 
And when the person tears the plant free, tears the whole leaf free, the plant is severely impacted in its ability to photosynthesize and is stimulated to produce new leaf at a higher rate than if the leaf were only partially removed. And I would bet if you had a lettuce plant that you cut half of the growth off and a lettuce plant that you cut 80% of the, the growth of the leaves off and a lettuce plant that you cut almost 100% but left just enough for it to work, that the one at the bottom with the list just enough to work would tend to produce new leaf material at a more rapid rate. That's just a hypothesis. I've never checked it because, frankly, I don't grow that much lettuce and I've never been that in need of lettuce to actually worry about the productivity. But if I was doing this uh, as a leaf crop on a farm, which we may be doing for a market garden soon, it might matter if you're doing a couple acres of lettuce. The, 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 the yield increase. The other thing that I'm thinking could be the issue here is that cutting is unnatural for a plant. It doesn't necessarily have a, um, a, a native natural stimuli uh, to the plant from a standpoint of, let's say, at an energetic level. And I don't mean some kind of hippie nonsense contemplating my navel, the energy flow of the universe, dudes, karma and all. I don't mean that way. I just mean that there's an, there is energy in all living things. And those energies, when stimulated certain ways, do have certain responses. And that a plant, especially an annual leafy greens, main way that it would lose leaf um, in nature is for something to feed upon it. And that feeding, if it was a you know not an insect eating holes in a leaf, but an herbivore actually taking whole leaf and like a like a ruminant eating it, uh, would do things like that animal would tear. It would tug at the plant. It would pull on the roots a little bit. It would disturb the plant. It would send a message to the plant. I've eaten you. Grow so I can eat you again. And that plant might respond at a higher level. And your wife going after just yanking the leaves off is a lot more like a deer or a goat chewing down the plant than it is like a person with a very sharp knife making a clean cut. So I don't know if it's that big a deal or not, but... I'd like some of you guys that are big lettuce growers to start experimenting with this and let us know what you find out. Because, again, for the backyard grower, plant two more lettuce plants and don't worry about it. you know. But for a, a market producer and up, with cut-and-come-again production of leaf crops, if there's a legitimate quantity difference per plant across an acre... You could be talking thousands of dollars in increased yielded productivity. So it'd be interesting to know if something that simple makes that big a difference. If it does, those are my two hypotheses as to why. One, the stimulation of the plant as though it had been fed upon with an innate native response of plants that are you know, fed on by ruminants to re-sprout new growth that's higher when, when fed upon than cleanly cut. Or the other side greater ability of a plant that's cut with more leaf left to photosynthesize and therefore the plant feels it has less need to put on new growth. Those are my two uh, thoughts. Love to hear from other people that may know and love to hear from anybody that's experimented with this or does so in the future. Let's take another call. Hey Jack, it's John from Illinois. Question about septic uh, fields or systems. I'm really not 100% sure what they're called at this point. Um, is it safe to use that soap that we make ourselves with that popular recipe off the Internet, or should I buy a biodegradable soap for laundry? 
thank you for your show. Bye. My first thought when I heard this is, I hope so, because uh, that's what we use. We've been doing it, and we had any problems, and we did it in Arkansas for over a year, and we've done it here now since we moved in. We only use the homemade laundry soap because you can make like five gallons of it for like 19 cents versus like 20 bucks for a little one gallon thing at the grocery store or whatever the hell that stuff costs. I don't even know because we don't buy it anymore. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe I better do some research. But immediately I felt calm about it because, well, I know so many people that use this. And I would say the majority of people making their own detergent today are country folks. Uh, that live out and about throughout the country, and the majority of them are on a uh, septic tank. Uh, I will tell you this. The laundry soap that we make, and I say we, I mean kind of the whole, like, homesteader community, uh, and I know everybody is a little different, but the main type that's made is borax, washing soda, and, and white ivory soap shredded up. And um, I don't know anybody that's ever had a problem with their septic tank because of this. Not anybody at all. Um, so that immediately mitigates my fears. I would not use it in a gray water system. Borax, gray water, don't mix. Okay, borax, when, when you know if it's not put through a septic and has long time to break down to its component parts, it would be toxic to a lot of living things. So borax, gray water, no. I would not use the homemade laundry soap using borax in a gray water system, but a typical septic system I wouldn't have a problem with. I found one person that had an issue with their septic tank, and they had to have it pumped out and all. It turned out that like she had such a big family and such a small system that she was advised to have it pumped out every two and a half years, and she went like three and a half years, forgot about it, and then had to have it pumped out. But when she had it pumped out, there were little white flecks on one of the screens, and she stopped the septic guy about the homemade soap, and... He explained that little pieces and parts and things are things that clog septics, and that's a bigger problem usually than the chemical itself, as long as it doesn't kill all the bacteria. But she worried that when you make the soap, that the hard bar ivory soap could congeal into little parts, and that those could clog the screen, and that might have been what the white things were. And she made a modified recipe, which I would think would work pretty well, which is just basically the borax, the washing soda, and citric acid eliminating the ivory soap and the citric acid should actually be beneficial to the septic system and help it better do the biological breakdown that it's designed to do. So we might experiment with that. And if it works just as good and it costs just as little, then why not do it? Um, I will put a link to that article in today's show notes for you. But my overall response to this is the typical... Uh, You know, washing uh, machine detergent that most of us are making seems to have no problem for anybody that I know of with a septic. And I know tons and tons of people using it, and I've never heard anybody say, yeah, I jacked up my septic. So I'm not too concerned about it. Uh, septic tanks are more about keeping them healthy. One of the most damaging things you can do to your septic is to install a garbage disposal and start putting food down there. And this house that I live in now has a septic tank and a garbage disposal. And I have a wife that I constantly say, don't put stuff in the garbage disposal. And she constantly puts a little bit. I'm like, put it in the compost pit, feed it to the chickens. It doesn't need to go down there. And every day it seems like a little bit of something ends up in there. Uh, I've contemplated, except it might result in a really big skirmish, 
going in and removing the garbage disposal because you should not use a garbage disposal with a septic. That's a much bigger risk to the septic's health, in my opinion, with clogging screens and filters, etc., than using homemade laundry detergent. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is John from Virginia with an expert counsel question, probably for John Pugliano. Um, and here's the question. It's about um, fire rays and bug out locations. Background. About a year ago, you had a guest that talked about incorporating for SEP IRAs. Something like a great idea, and it would allow you to hold privately uh, gold and silver. Now, I know you don't appreciate IRAs, but I thought maybe John uh, could answer this one for us. So one were to incorporate and to have a SEP IRA and use that money and free it up under private control more, could it be used to purchase a bug-out location or at least some land that could be aimed at that? Uh, just a thought. Appreciate the thoughts. Keep up the good work. Appreciate what you do. Bye. You know, first of all, I do not know where this belief that I don't appreciate or don't believe in or don't recommend IRAs comes from. I, I really don't. I recommend fully informed knowledge of IRAs in making your decision. And I always recommend when you're choosing an option, if you've chosen an option that has a Roth side, that you take the Roth versus the conventional because the Roth always wins in the end, unless you're like one year from retirement. And the financial advisors that tell you, well, you'll have a lower tax rate when you retire, are lying bullshit artists because they have no idea what your tax rate is going to be when you retire. And so the, I always recommend Roth over conventional. And I always say if it's an employer-provided 401k, and you'll hear exactly why in another call that it was also for John that I'm going to take on my own, um, why I don't like 401ks, not why I don't like IRAs. Okay, so let's... Jack does not hate all retirement accounts. Jack says don't max them out to the exclusion of savings that exist outside of retirement accounts. So if you have like two grand in the bank in your savings account for your emergency fund, that's all your savings, and all your other savings goes into your retirement account, I think it's very, very bad and very, very reckless, and it leads to very, very painful decisions in life down the road. Okay, so that doesn't mean don't have an IRA. That means don't put all of your savings in IRAs. Okay, now the next thing. You said a SEP IRA. I don't think that's what you're talking about. A SEP is a simplified employee pension plan, and you said incorporate so that you can have one. Sole proprietorships can do it a SEP IRA, uh, which is really a SEP, and they call it an IRA. Um, so you don't need to incorporate to do a SEP. And the SEP has to be run through your business. Now, even if you're a sole proprietorship, You can run it through the name of your business using like a DBA or doing business as. You don't have to be a corporation. You could be an individual, but you're doing business under the name of the business. That's okay. It's a little form you file. Most places it's free. Some places it's like nine bucks to file a form. Done. Okay? So you don't need to incorporate to do a SEP. You're talking, I think, about a self-directed IRA. And the reason you would incorporate to do that is you don't need to incorporate. You incorporate an entity to act as a custodian, and you are your own entity. So when you when you set up an IRA today, and it's with Chase Bank because you can do a Chase or E Trade or whatever, they're the custodian, okay? And that just means that they oversee and administrate the account. You can do that for yourself. Now the only reason that guest talked about doing this 
was for the purpose of holding silver and or gold physical metal in your IRA so that you didn't have to have your silver in a vault somewhere in Maryland where you couldn't examine it and know it was there. Which I did because there were people that said, well, I've already got money in an IRA and I want to figure out how to do this. and all." Because I think physical metal in an IRA is stupid. It's dumb. You've taken the most anonymous form of wealth known to man and you've made it public. If you're going to hold metal in an IRA, hold an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, which is much easier and has a much lower premium to move in and out of the metal. Okay, It's like stock in silver or stock in gold or stock in platinum. And there's ETFs for like anything you can think of, from, from soybeans to timberland. So if you want to hold a commodity in an IRA, do it in paper. It's a paper asset. It's a, it's a vehicle designed for paper assets. Okay? So holding real estate in an IRA, you do not need to have a SEP or simplified employee pension plan, which you wouldn't be able to hold real estate in at all, or a self-directed IRA to be able to hold land in an IRA. You can do it with a conventional, everyday, off-the-shelf individual retirement account that you do not have to incorporate for, and adding the hurdle and the burden of being your own plan administrator and a self-directed is probably not worth it. Okay, So we don't need that to hold land. Here's the actual problem. If you hold land in a retirement account, and yes, it can be done, the rules are very clear that you may not use the land. You may not lease it to yourself. You may not rent it to yourself. You may not use it for personal use at all. The land can sit there and appreciate in value and then be sold, and then that money can be within your IRA and used however you want to. Okay. Um, and you can rent it. But then the rent goes into the IRA. And this is where you need a, a, a type of IRA with an administrator that does this. right? So, it's a, so you can do it self-directed, but it's a lot of work for not much money saved to do it. Now, here's why it's dumb, because it's dumb. I wouldn't put land in an IRA either. I'm not saying IRAs are dumb. I'm saying land in an IRA is dumb. Unless you're going to make more than a half a million dollars on it, There's no reason to do it. See, the IRS says in your lifetime, you can earn a half a million dollars on real estate and pay no taxes on it. So you can buy a house for $150,000, keep it for a few years, sell it for $200,000. You make $50,000 profit. It's your real estate. It's internal. It's not commercial real estate. Understand that. This does not apply to commercial real estate. This does not apply to land or real estate that is run for profit. It's your personal real estate asset that you own for your use only. Okay, doesn't mean you don't rent it out to your cousin on the side or something like that. Technicalities, and you know, you're gonna tell them. I mean, but you know, if you're running it as a rental house, this is different. So you get into, I think it's called 1387 Exchange or something like that. Something Exchange, some number for it, but that's commercial side. Personal use, half a million dollars in your lifetime. I believe it's actually $250,000 to the individual and $500,000 as a married couple. But I could be wrong. But it's, it's, it's significant. It's more than most people will ever earn from real estate. It's designed so that middle-class people can sell their house and not get burned. So that they'll go buy another house that's more expensive than they can afford. Yay! That's why it's there. So if you were going to buy a chunk of bug-out land, there's no real need to defer any gain on it. 
which is the main purpose of an IRA. The only reason I would see that you would do this would be you already have money in an IRA. You want to use that money to buy the piece of land. And you need to figure out how to get to the money to buy the piece of land. If it was a normal IRA that you had control over, not a 401k, which I don't like, and again, you'll hear why in a later question, I would pay the taxes and penalties on it, take the money out and buy the land. Or I would come up with as much money as I could outside of the plan and take only what I need out of the plan and pay the interest and penalties to buy the land before I would go through all the crap and all the headaches and all the paperwork to try to put the land inside the IRA and then be told I can't use the land. IRAs holding real estate only makes sense with commercial real estate. That's the, that's the only way they make sense. Because there's such a high personal deduction on real estate value and, and real estate income on personally owned real estate that you have to get over that hurdle before it makes any sense to do it at all. And you've got to get significantly over it before it's worth doing. Because you're owning a piece of property you can't use. And they, they do not have a sense of humor about that rule either. They, it's a very painful thing to end up in trouble with the IRS. In some ways, more painful a lot of times than ending up with a minor criminal misdemeanor charge. The, the, the court system of this country, as bad as it is in some ways, with misdemeanor crime, is probably more lenient and understanding than the Internal Revenue Service. So, unless you want to buy the land with money that's tied up in the account, I would not do it. And if it's like a $50,000 piece of land, the interest on the $50,000 is five grand. Uh, the penalties are another five grand. So, you got to take about what, $62,500 out or something like that to get fifty grand clear. And then the taxes on it, take it in a low tax year. Now, if you want to plan to be able to use money in the future that's gone into an IRA, all right? then you need a Roth IRA. This is another reason the Roth wins. Let's say for 10 years you're contributing to a Roth IRA. You're maxing out your contribution at $5,500. That's $55,000 you've placed into your Roth IRA. $5,500 times 10 years, maximum contribution times 10 years. You got fifty-five grand in there. Your account now is worth $100,000. Because you have made money on your investments inside your account. So you can leave $45,000 in your account, take $55,000 out of your account, pay no taxes and no penalties on it because it was all post-tax income and do anything the hell you want to with it. So if I was tying money up in an IRA and I wanted to make sure that some significant portion of the money was available in the future without tax consequences, I would choose a Roth just one of the many reasons that Roth beats conventional. Okay, Real quick, why would you choose the different types of IRAs? The primary reason is a contribution limit. A traditional Roth or a traditional or Roth IRA, you just set up like with E-Trade or anything like that for yourself, you can put $5,500 a year in it. That's it. You can't put $5,501 in it, which was really started because of the traditional, because it was deductible. They just, when they created the Roth, they said, we don't want to let those rich people be able to hide too much money from us. If you're over 50, you'll put 6,500 in. They let you put a grand more in, right? So, you know, that's how it works. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> Your adjusted gross monthly income, if you're married, cannot exceed $188,000. 
if you want an IRA, if you are charity, uh, filing jointly. Right? So if you go over 188 grand, you don't qualify anymore. So there's limits on IRA so that the evil rich, and if you're single, it's 127 grand, I think. Right? That's your adjusted gross. That's not your paycheck. That's when you file taxes, what you pay taxes on. Okay? I don't know how well that one's enforced, but I don't like to jack around with the IRS, uh, at all. So, but that's the limits of a traditional IRA. When you go into a SEP, That's a simplified employee pension plan. That, again, it has to be run through your company. And there's, there's a size on the company limit is how many employees you can have and rules for what the employer can or cannot contribute. Basically, the employer does not have to contribute directly to the SEP, but if they do it for one person, they have to do it for everybody the same way. That's the basic rules. Okay. Uh, but you can, you can run a SEP plan through your own company, and some small companies make set plans available to their employees, okay, and make it all employee-funded, and that's okay, too. You can contribute up to $52,000 in 2014, okay, uh, in, in income to your, your SEP, right? So you can put a lot more money away. That's the big advantage there. And generally, you have a lot of options, either a huge plethora of options within a plan, or it's run like an IRA, which means you can put the money anywhere you want within the SEP. Okay? Then there's what's called a simple IRA. That's a savings incentive match plan for employees. This also has to be run through a company. And in this, the, the, the business... Um, must contribute on a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis up to 3% of employee compensation. So to set up a simple IRA in your own company, you would have to be contributing, if you were going to just put in out of your pocket, right, um, 3% of your income, you'd have to match it from your company. So if you put in $1,000 this year as a person, you'd have to match it with $2,000 from your company, which is no problem because it's your own company So you just do the math and figure out how it works. But if you have employees, it starts to get gray, and you got to give it to everybody and treat everybody equal. So if you're a one-man show, it's got some advantages to it. Um, but you can put up to $12,000 a year in there. So you can see as you, as you move these plans into employer-managed plans, even if you are your own employer, the limit to what you can put in goes up. This is to incentivize companies to incentivize you to put your money away, right? So, and then there's what's called a 401k, which is employer run, and a solo K, which is you run your own 401k, and you can contribute up to $17,500. The solo K has some real advantages. Because a solo K, you could set up your own program, so you create your own options inside a 401k that you run for yourself, right? And that's probably the one that makes the most sense for pure savings in a retirement-style account, specifically with a Roth option. Right, so Jack doesn't appreciate 401ks and IRAs. Come on, guys. I think you just got a pretty good lesson of IRAs. My only point is I think that the best option for most people is a standard individual retirement account until you are at least getting to a point where, hey, I want to put in more than $5,500. And then ask yourself very clearly why. There's a lot of other ways to save money without putting it into an IRA and even some ways to do it with tax deferral or tax elimination, like tax-free bonds, for instance, would be another way you could do this. Um, but my big lesson here is 
Don't do something just because it sounds cool and truly understand what you're doing. Because, again, if you hold land in an IRA, you can't use it. Now, if you had bug out, you had a piece of land out in the middle of the woods and your IRA owned it and you went out there and hunted deer on it, you're breaking the law, but would anybody know? Probably not. But why would you put that limit on yourself? Again, unless you're trying to get the money that's already captive. And unless we're talking about big bucks, hundreds of thousands of dollars here, I'd pay, I'd pay the atonement for my sins of letting the government control too much of my money. And I would get my money free and clear, and I would buy my land outside of the IRA. That's what I would do. Uh, if John listens to today's show and wants to add to it, I welcome his response. Hey, Jack, this is Bob, MSB member currently in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, my wife and I are going to be going down to uh, Texas next week to look at property in Mason, Wano, and Bandera counties, and we would like to get your thoughts on things to look for, things to be aware of, any peculiarities to the area that we might not be aware of. That's the basic question. <clears throat> Backstory is, we lived in California for 28 years. We moved to Flagstaff a year and a half ago as a kind of a halfway. I've been staying with a very gracious friend, and we finally have decided that Texas is where we need to be. And so um, it's time to finally find a spot and put down some roots and uh, start pursuing this uh, permaculture lifestyle that you uh, talk about all the time and we're very intrigued by. So your input would be greatly appreciated. We love the show, and uh, thank you so much for all that you do. Bye. Okay, so just understand you're out of my neck of the woods down that way. It's a place I did a lot of camping and fishing back when I was younger and spent a lot more time screwing around than I did working um, and, and took any weekend I could to get out with a fishing rod or a gun in my hand and uh, or, or hike. Uh, and I don't get to do as much of that now because I have a homestead and I'm, I'm you know, more dedicated to expanding the land around me than seeing land that lives, you know, somewhere else. So I only know so much about the area, but I can tell you some things about it and some things to consider. Uh, number one, you're down in what we call the Texas Hill Country and you're actually smack dab in the middle of what's known as the Edwards Plateau. And uh, plateau is a high area of land that's relatively flat, and that's what you've got. You've got a whole upheaved area with a bunch of rolling hills on top of it, flat bluffs, arroyos, that type of thing. Um, it's a beautiful, productive, and harsh environment. Uh, you're probably USDA Zone 8 in most of the area, so you can grow pretty much anything, but you may struggle a bit with the earth itself. You're going to be into an alkaline soil, uh, so you're going to have work to do with that, uh, to a degree anyway. You're going to be in an area dominated by junipers and mesquite, uh, lots of white-tailed deer. So if you're going into larger-scale production, you're going to have to deal with deer. And I mean lots of deer, and then some more deer, and then some more deer. I've always looked at it, you know, it's a deer garden. One guy told me he had to shoot seven deer out of his garden, and he got almost no vegetables. And I said, your garden grows deer. But, you know, I mean, you do have that issue down there. Um, it's rocky. If you look at land and you think, oh, I could put a pond there, before you spend money on it, dig a hole. You may find out that it's not quite possible. You're going to have a lot of the limestone-style rock like we have here and other rock formations down that way. There's a beautiful place down that way called Enchanted Rock, and it's a great big granite dome. And it's very cool to go to in, in the hot days of summer with the cool evenings because as the rock cools, it actually makes these eerie sounds that the Native Americans thought were spirits, and they thought it was haunted. 
And if you listen to it, sometimes you feel like maybe they were right. It's, it's, it's very cool. You've got the Guadalupe River. You've got Canyon Lake uh, down that way. You've got the Colorado River. Um, it is a beautiful area. But I'm telling you that if you want to do whole-on, full-on permaculture, you're either going to have to do a lot of improvement on most pieces of land Um, you're going to be looking at mostly cattle-style rangeland type land down that way, or you're going to have to get to be very intensive zone one, two, zone one and zone two style stuff where you're bringing in a lot of inputs. Um, it's going to be as tough as what I have, but most likely tougher. So would I recommend it? Yeah. If you understand all these things and if you find a piece of land that works for you, just, I mean, you're going to see rocky bluffs everywhere. And little pieces of rock everywhere. And scrub brush everywhere. And you will have an ample opportunity to get familiar with Texas reptiles. Uh, as a herper, which is a, herper, so a herpetology enthusiast, which I am, um, it's one of my favorite areas to go collecting. Uh, and to go hunting and see what can be found. Uh, from lizards to snakes and beyond. And, and you will run into some rattlesnakes. Um, water is going to be your key issue. I'd say your big thing is, if you're looking at a piece of land, not a house, and there's not a well there yet, and they say, ah, oh, well's only $5,000, you better find someone that says, I can drill a well on that piece of property for $5,000 before you, before you budget it that way. Water is going to be key. Uh, utility access is going to be key. Road maintenance is something you need to look into. Waste disposal you'll need to look into, because a lot of places out there, you don't just have the garbage man come by. A lot of places you do. A lot of places you don't. Uh, we talked about septic here just a minute ago. Septic systems, what's required. Usually it's not a problem if you're over an acre. But, you know, it does, is it going to work where you're at? You know, a conventional system? Or are you going to have to budget for a more expensive system? Uh, the good news is, unless you move like into a subdivision somewhere near Austin or San Antonio or something like that, uh, on the edges of those counties, um, which doesn't sound like you're interested in doing, no one is going to bother you. You'll be able to do anything you want, and nobody will ever bother you. If you're in an unincorporated part of one of those counties, you're going to have to apply for a septic permit of some sort when you put your septic system in. And if it's already there, you don't have to worry about it. And you will never deal with the code office ever again. Ever, ever again. And pretty much any county in Texas is like that. But as you move into central western Texas, it's more like that. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, and there's plenty of public land as well, parks, state parks, and things like that. Um, it's a beautiful area, but you're going to have limits to what you can do on broad acre-style, food forest-style permaculture, you know, at acre and up stuff. Now, if you'll take your time and you slowly face things over time, you can terraform an area. It's certainly going to be easier than if you went out to West Texas Right out, you know, halfway to El Paso or further out, like Fort Stockton or something like that, in a true desert. The hill country is basically a scrub desert environment. You'll get less rain than me, but more rain than a true desert. Um, there's a lot of elevation to work with. Just if you're thinking about earthworks and water impoundment, you need to really know about the, the the soil condition of the land before you make an offer on it. That's my big. When you say permaculture, that's my big thing for you. If you come up north and east of that area, you get into nice, loamy, black, 
you know, cattle country, sandy soils and loamy black soils that are much easier to work, but the land prices go up and the overall beauty genuinely does decrease. The hill country's gorgeous. Absolutely full on gorgeous. While you're here, get in close to Austin, get in closer to San Antonio, get into places where you're a little bit closer to all the stores and shopping and services. I find a lot of people move out in the country and they feel like they went too far out. Consider both options. Just don't, don't ever get yourself locked into HOAs, property owners association, stuff like that. Uh, look for places that are unincorporated and nobody's messing with you and nobody's added an additional layer of government. Look at water, big time. Basic permaculture checklist though. Go back to jefflawton.com and look at, you know, the very, one of the very first free videos you put out and look at the water, the access structure opportunities. Those are your big things no matter where you're at. Let's take another call. Jack, I have a question about murky water filters and well water. Um, I've read quite a bit online trying to figure out the best way to handle my well water. Um, I haven't been able to afford to have everything tested. We've been using it and filtering it with a Brita, but I have a smaller Berkey, and I want to start using that. But what I read online says many different things, of course, as usual. So um, when we water with, I mean, we filter with the Brita, we still have, like, the iron in the bottom of the water. We have, so I know I need to go ahead with the Berkey. But what I read says to keep it in the refrigerator. One says keep it on the counter. How do you take care of it? You know, different things like that. Uh, and I thought my refrigerator doesn't have a lot of room in it for the Berkey, but I can try and find a way. But if I don't have to keep it in there, I don't want to. Um, if you could help me with this, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, I don't know who is saying that you need to keep your Berkey water filter system in a refrigerator. But whoever they are, never listen to them ever again. Because that is not the purpose of a Berkey. And I don't know anybody that keeps their Berkey in a refrigerator. And the only reason that I can see that you would ever keep your Berkey in a refrigerator... Uh, I guess it's because you want your you want your water cold. I mean that is the only reason ever. Water does not go bad at room temperature. It just doesn't. It's dumb. Whoever said that, they are not qualified to give you advice. As far as the 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 assurance that you're not going to have to worry about um anything being bad in your water pathogenic bacteria, cysts, parasites, etc. Um, Brita does not guarantee and is not certified for any of that. It's Brita is designed to make water taste better. That's all there is to it. Um, this is what the, the Berkey exceeds purification standards at 99.9999%. Four nine uh, after the 99, right? So like six nine purity against... Pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites, E. coli, uh, Klebsiella, Pseudonymus, uh, Agunura, which I don't even know, how to, Agurinosa, Gerardia, Cryptosporidium, Rat, Rat, Ratulia, and Taranga. Okay. Also viruses, 
um, pesticides, herbicides, chlorine, aluminum up to 95%, copper up to 95%, iron up to 95%, lead up to 95%, mercury up to 95%, cadmium up to 95%, chromium up to 99%. Uh, organic compounds uh, like atrazine, benzene, chloroform, ethylene, things like that, removed to below detectable limits. Vertiguerantine is nothing with that. Radiologicals like radon-222, removed below detectable limits. Um, if you have fluoride or arsenic uh, and other heavy metals, it will remove 99.75 reduction, right? 99.75% of what's there. If you add the lower filters. So you only need those if you're worried about fluoride and arsenic and heavy metals because the, the top filters are not designed to remove those things. They're actually designed to leave minerals in the water because minerals are good for you. So when you hear people talk about zero water, that means all the minerals that are good for you are gone. Yay! Oh wait, that's not good. Right? So the Berkey is just a superior product all around, but it does not need to go in your refrigerator. Now, but I'd like my water cold, please. Excellent. What we do, we save the one-gallon jugs that come from Arizona iced tea. And you can do this with soda bottles, whatever you want to. Okay, We don't drink it, but we have friends that do. They save the bottles for us. We clean them out really, really good. If you're really a nervous Nelly, you can put a couple drops of chlorine in there and shake it up with half full of water and shake it up really good and dump it out and then give it a couple good rinses, or you can just rinse it the hell out and relax. And then we put the water in the Berkey, we fill those bottles with water, and we keep them stored dun, 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 in our utility room on the floor. We probably have a good 20 gallons at any one time in there. We probably have another good 30 or 40 gallons in the garage in the same bottles. And then we take bottles as we want cold water, and we keep a couple bottles in the refrigerator. And then when that bottle's empty, we get another bottle and stick it in there. And like for our coffee maker and all, we just set a bottle on the counter. And when it's empty, it goes in the sink, it gets refilled, it gets dumped in the Berkey. The Berkey filters it, comes out the bottom, that's it, dun, dun, dun. That's so, that's how I use my Berkey. That's how everybody I know, I don't know about the bottle procedure, but as far as everybody I know that owns a Berkey, it's not in the refrigerator. I can't think of a good reason for that to ever happen. Now, Occasionally, you do want to do things like clean out the top of your Berkey because it's sitting there moist when it's not full. Um, a Berkey works if water goes through it. That's how you know it's still good. If water stops coming through, you can clean your filters, and usually they'll work again for a long-ass time. Personally, I look at it this way. I rinse them off once. I put them back in there. I run it. If it slows down a second time, I replace them. But you don't have to. I know people that have cleaned theirs out four or five times. I, it does not work that way with the lower filters. If you're f filtering uh, the, the the fluoride and the arsenic, it comes with you know recommended value you know amounts you use before you dispose of it and replace it. But there you go. That's it, man. And I'll tell you, um, I wouldn't own a, another water filter system. There's nothing as economical as a Berkey in the long run. Um, it puts a Brita to shame. It 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 puts a Brita to shame. I'm looking at a little comparison chart here. And this is done by Conscious Water, not Jeff the Berkey guy Gleason. And the cost of filtering water for five years with a Berkey, because that one set of filters will actually five years, 279 bucks. Cost with a Berkey, or not a Berkey, a Brita over five years, $978. Um, so, and it does a much better job. And it looks cool. And it doesn't need to go in your refrigerator. Um, people are too paranoid about their water. 
Uh, I have people all the time, what do I put in my water to keep it from going bad? Nothing. Nothing. That's what you put in water to keep it from going bad. Nothing. You, you, you only not put something to prevent it from going bad. You don't put anything in it that would go bad. There's no food in water and there's no contaminants in water when you store it in a, in a sealed container. It will never go bad. It'll get flat. It'll taste like crap. It might taste like plastic if it's in a plastic container or whatever. But it's not going to ever be something you can't drink. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Oh, wait. Hold on. There's one very important thing I wanted to say there. You should test your water. Um, and you say you don't have a lot of money to get your water tested. And water testing is not very expensive. But... You can do it yourself um, for about 20 bucks, and it's the 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 system. Actually, it's 23.94, and if you have Amazon Prime, they'll ship for free within two days. It is the the kit I recommend is the WaterSafe WS425W Well Water Test Kit. It tests for just about everything you really need to test for. The results are as good as if you send your water away. Okay, it has the water safe WS425W water well test kit. Uh, and it would be interesting if, if money's not a huge concern to test it before and after it went through Berkey. Just saying. Anyway, that's the, again, the test kit I recommend. Water safe WS425W water well test kit. I will put a link to it in today's show notes. Now let's take your next call. Hey, Jack. This is Aaron in Colorado. Um, I just wanted to share with you real quickly. My son and I were listening to your um, fishing podcast. He just happened to be in. And in my truck, I was listening to it. And um, he started asking a lot of questions. He's six years old, decided he wanted to do some fishing. And, of course, you know, I'm all for that. Went and got him rigged up. And um, we headed out this weekend and had just a dynamite time using actually some of the, I grew up fishing a lot, but using some of the tips and tricks that you had mentioned about finding different structures and taking the time to explain it to my boy and um, and we killed we killed it <laughs> at 41 um, out got that day and um, we just had a great time and man he's just on fire now and so uh, we're looking around our little uh, metro area for ponds and lakes and stuff like that and uh, hooking up with some other people that are doing the same. So um, just want to share that with you. Uh, thanks for all that you do. Proud to be an MSC, and uh, I'll talk to you later. All right, bye. I played that because I want to share with you that there's a lot of stuff coming in from the fishing series. Uh, I'm getting emails, uh, occasionally a phone call like that one, uh, comments of people that have never fished that are given a shot and having some success. I'm getting emails from people that said, you know, I haven't fished since I was 10 years old and, uh, the kid heard the show with me and started bugging me and we went out there and we started catching fish. I'm, uh, one guy sent me a picture. I got to put it on Facebook. I'll try to get it up today. I've just been so busy. Um, his little girl holding up a little, little sunfish. That was her first fish she caught. She's hooked on it now. Um, pun not intended, but, but convenient. Um, fishing's an awesome sport and it's an awesome skill. It's an awesome bonding experience and it's something that's very accessible. And I'll tell you, I really feel good when I do things on the air 
And I start to hear from people saying, we're doing it, we're using what you taught us, and it's working for us. And I, he said we, they caught 41, and it kind of like, I couldn't really hear. It sounded like he said he caught 41 trout. If you caught 41 trout in a single trip with you know two people, you did kill it. That's 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 awesome. That is killing it. And uh, hopefully there was a few of them worth taking home to, uh, to experiment with is uh, delicious dinners. And I'm glad to hear about your results so far. And if you've had great results with fishing, especially using anything you learned in our fishing series so far, which will not continue next week. The fishing series will continue the week after next. I've got some really important things we need to talk about next week with the economy and jobs and the future of this country. And then we'll go back to happier topics. Anyway, thanks for that call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Josh from Michigan. And I guess this question would be for you. Um, and it concerns the ethics of permaculture, specifically people care. My question is, and the backstory of, I guess, is uh, I know a farm that's been receiving government grant loans for the better part of, or not loans, but government grants for the better part of five years to establish mob grazing systems on their farm. Um, recently, on that farm, his wife took a PDC and... Uh, and now they're calling it permaculture, a permaculture farm. And I was just wondering your viewpoint on the specifics of whether that would be ethical under the people care ethic to basically steal from everybody to set up your farm and then call it a permaculture farm. Um, I don't know if it's just jealousy because I'm busting my ass to try to put a swale in myself or, or whatever I'm trying to do, um, I uh, I just wanted uh, your opinion on it because I respect your opinion a lot. Thank you. Bye. Uh, this is where the purest anarchist and purest libertarian says, absolutely, you're stealing, and it's not a people care ethic, and you're part of the problem, and then they get in their car and drive on public roads which were built with the tax dollars of their fellow citizens. And I don't think the libertarian or anarchist is wrong when they get in their car and drive on the public road that was built with the tax dollars. I don't think they're necessarily intentionally contributing to the problem. I think they're wrong when they point to someone else who takes something like a grant and uses it to produce something like a permaculture farm. Would I prefer that everybody in permaculture said to the government, F you... We don't need you. We don't want you. We're not going to be part of what you do, and we're going to do things our own, and we will never take a dollar from the government because we do not want the conditions that go along with it. Would I prefer that? Yes. Is it going to happen? No, it's not. Let me explain something about the three ethics. The three ethics are care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus is an investment to the end of the first two. Sometimes the third ethic is also uh, set as uh, setting limitations on population and resource use. Okay, so in other words, a piece of land can only support so many cows, and uh, you can't put 10,000 cows on one acre. You can't do it. You'll destroy the land, and that's not care of the earth either. And that one p piece of uh, land, that one acre of land, can only support so many humans. With its, with its production. So we have to limit population and consumption 
based on what's available, not in a eugenics way, which is what some people try to twist it into. And the third ethic really works either way. Whether it's return of surplus or setting limits, it's the same thing. I don't want to go into that discussion. Let's just talk about the people care ethic and the ethics as a whole. The ethics are based on common components of indigenous peoples' moral codes. That's where they're from. They're not from any government as you recognize it today on any large scale. And what that means is they're inherently personal. And what I consider people care and you consider people care might be different. And we have to be, as long as I'm not punching you in the face or your neighbor in the face and you're not doing that to me, and I'm not actually impinging the way you care for people and you're not impinging the way I care for people, we have to have enough faith in each other as human beings to be okay with that ethic being the individual's guide, not a state-mandated guide. right? Because what you're talking about is like some kind of permaculture police that says that is and that isn't, and that's not how it works. That's not how permaculture works. Nobody really owns the word. There's no permaculture police. There's no permaculture gods. There's the originator, the creator, Bill Mollison. And as someone with honor, I honor Bill, and I honor Bill's intentions, and I try to stay straight, stay true to Bill's intentions when I'm using the word he made matter. Okay? But that's it. So people care in of itself. I don't get to tell you what people care is and isn't. But we also have to have some level of a standard where we can all agree what is it people care. And we it's one of those things where can you give the clear line of exactly where it starts and where it stops? No, but you can surely determine 99% of the time when the line's crossed. If you're using migrant labor, paying people a piecework that are collapsing in your fields, you're not caring for people. And if what you're doing is creating a toxic outflow that's harming somebody else, you're not caring for people. And the normal, rational human being can look at that and go, yeah, that's not people care. That's not earth care. That's not dealing with your surplus. Because it's not just what happens with the good part of the surplus, it's what happens with the bad part of the surplus. right? So when you look at surplus, you'll think, well, that guy raised a bunch of cattle. He's got a bunch of meat now. He's going to sell that and make some money. So he's got some surplus. He should share that surplus with me because that's what the third ethic says. Well, not only are you wrong, it's just very myopic view of what the word surplus means. If we've had a bunch of cattle and they've graduated bovine university uh, so they can become delicious dinner, then we also have a lot of waste product from that. So what happens to the hide? What happens to the bones? What happens to the cartilage, the marrow, the fat? How can all of those things be harvested to positive uses and reinvested back to where the cattle came from? Right? And then the cow produces this stuff called not manure. It's shit. It really is. I know some people don't like that word, but if you've ever been in a cow field in August, manure doesn't do it justice, does it? It's shit. Well, that's a surplus, too, so we have to do something like that. So all of these ways that we practice these ethics, they're meant to be a guide that a fully informed, realized human being can take for themselves. And then we get into an area like taxes and the use of tax dollars. And then we, we go from a pretty cut-and-dry black-and-white world to a very gray world. Now, I won't take it. Perma Ethos has made a commitment. We do not want 
a USDA or FDA grant for anything ever. We don't want it. We don't want a subsidy. We don't want any government money. Because personally, we feel like tax is theft. And personally, we don't want to be any more part of that system than we have to be. So we will drive on the road because, well, until they make, you know, vehicles that take off horizontally and I'm allowed to fly it around, I'm not, I don't have another option. I don't have another option. Right? And I will take every deduction I can so that I don't pay a tax, which is kind of like, you know, receiving a tax on the other end if you want to balance it out. We have to live with what we have. The other thing I see is this, and this is why I don't actually have any problem with what these people are doing. I keep saying this, and I think this is the best way I've come to describe taxation as far as what to do with the tax money. Because we have a big, how much the tax is, is, or should it be there, is one debate. But the other thing is we have to look at, okay, well, whether or not we think it should be as much as it is, or whether or not we think it should even exist, it does. I see it like organs from people that died tragically. Livers and hearts and kidneys. From a guy, you know, a guy gets in a motorcycle wreck and he hits his head and he's, he dies. But he was a pretty healthy guy. He was in his mid-20s and his, his, his torso wasn't damaged. And we can use his lungs, we can use his heart, we can use his kidneys, we can use his liver. In fact, his liver is so great that we could actually split it in half and give it to two people. That actually happens. And, and then we say... Okay, how do we be good stewards of these organs that came to us by a horrific occurrence? And if somebody, instead of that guy having a motorcycle wreck where he took his own life through carelessness or random happenstance, somebody went in and shot that guy in the head to steal five bucks out of his wallet, which also sadly happens, you wouldn't say that the doctor who harvested his kidneys and saved a life with each one Saved a life with his heart, saved a life with his lungs, restored the quality of life with his skin. You wouldn't say that that doctor was part of murdering that man. Now, if people were being murdered for the purpose of organ harvesting, then the doctor's part of the problem. So are we taxed to create subsidies for farms? Yes, yeah, sort of, but we're taxed for so many reasons. And we're going to be taxed anyway. So this is how I look at it. Your government. Now, if, if every farm that refused a subsidy resulted in that money never being taken for somebody, right, I'd say that every farm has a moral obligation to stop taking grants and subsidies. If I thought if every farm did that, all of that money would stop being stolen from people, yes, it wouldn't stop one cent. Your government borrows 60% of the money it spends. Farm subsidies are like 1% of the whole budget. Farm grants... Or less than 1%. This is a grant, not a subsidy. Grant. So a grant is usually, we want to see this develop, so if you'll help with the development and proof of concept, we'll give you the money, and you have to use it to this end, and we don't control the rest of your farm. A grant's much better than a subsidy, because a subsidy says, thou shalt 
put thy land into the production of thy GMO crop and do it as thou art told, etc. Right? So the grant is specific to a single thing. And then once that's done, the obligations go away and that thing has happened. If we can harvest that liver to the end of creating sustainable agriculture versus have that money subsidize a farm that's spraying the food your children are eating with Roundup and Atrazine, even though I think it's terrible that that liver came from such a young person that died in the prime of their life, I would rather take that liver and put it into a young person with their life ahead of them who's taking good care of themselves then give it to an aging alcoholic who destroyed his liver with alcohol and has no intention of stopping drinking after we give him a new liver. And that's the best way I can answer that question in that gray area. Let's take another call. Jack, it's Carl from Michigan. Just wondering, how can I uh, trim fruit trees, specifically apple trees, that have not been touched in probably about 8 to 10 years? Um, I just moved on to this land, uh, got 10 acres about a year ago, and last fall found about nine apple trees on it. They're, it's, I mean, it's just grown wild. So I was just wondering, how can I, uh, how do I, I trim them? And is it too late now to trim them? And the trimmings I do get, can I root them? So anything, any advice would be appreciated. Thanks. Uh, a little side note before um, I answer that question. I, I think I asked people say, "Why don't you set up a webcam and like do uh, a video broadcast while you're broadcasting?" And I think it's because I don't have the discipline for it. Because especially on a Friday show where I'm, I'm doing all these calls and, and little bits of research in between and things like that, and drinking coffee, and I don't have a staff or anything, I'm in and out of my office. So sometimes there's five ten minutes in between a segment of the show, and that's going on today for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and one today is this is a day of birth in the Spirko household. Um, we're incubating about 30 eggs, I think 28 to 30 eggs, something like that, to add to a chicken flock that's growing. So this year we, we uh, hatched like a dozen to, to try out the incubator, and it worked. And uh, 11 is what we successfully hatched. And eight of those 11 are now half-grown adolescent chickens, three Disappeared for various reasons. Uh, one managed to get out of the chicken tractor. We couldn't find him. We found his body. Yeah, he was dead in the goose pen. Because he went in the goose pen while the goose had babies, and they murdered him. Yes, they murdered him. Or her. I'm not sure if it was a him or her. And two other ones disappeared that might have disappeared because of the rat snake that we recently eliminated from the homestead. But uh, they're there. And then I ordered uh, 40 chickens, 20 buff Orpingtons, and uh, 20 uh, random heavy assorted breeds to bring more genetics into the flock from EFAL. And they're outside right now in their little 8x8 uh, pen. They're only a week old and they're already on pasture. That's how I do things. I lose some that way, but I get tough genetics into my system. And they get lots of shade and water, and, and they're well cared for. But, you know, you will lose a few more that way than brooding them for four weeks under perfect conditions. And we got 22 baby ducklings, and they're here. 
But we decided we wanted more chickens, so I've got this other group, and so far today four have successfully hatched. And so I'm checking the incubator, and as they dry out, I'm moving them to a nice box, and there's about you know another 24, and we're waiting on to see how many of them will hatch. Never count them before they're hatched. Just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, on this question, though, um, when, I, when I heard this question, I went, i got to go to Mark Shepard on this one, but Mark's not part of the expert council. I have to tell you, Mark Shepard is an interesting guy. He is very adamant about what he thinks everybody in permaculture should be doing, and it seems like Mark feels everybody in permaculture should have a 100-plus acre farm and be full-on farming and production farming. And I think he's almost too locked into that, and he's too hard on small-scale producers and things like that. But I would love to hang out with Mark. I met him for about 20 seconds at Permaculture Voices. I'd love to have him on the air. I never hear back from the guy when I email him, but I love his work and I love what he's doing. And I think we are going to take a huge page out of his book, Uh, and what we're doing at Permaethos. Uh, Josiah and I have looked at everybody that's really productive and decided that Mark is more in our space than anybody else. So we love him, and I love his book, Restoration Agriculture. I'm going to read a few pages, probably more than a few pages here for you, from Restoration Agriculture about apples and about how apples used to be raised. And this will answer the caller's question, how would I prune these trees better than I ever could? Um, so let me start here. I'm on, I don't know what page because I'm in the, the ebook, uh, Kindle 1710 of 6906, which changes based on the size of the screen and size of the font. So I'm 25% through the book. Anyway, in, in a restoration agriculture system, we begin by choosing a best known pest resistant, pest and disease resistant varieties, and then we will not spray to kill pests or diseases. In restoration agriculture systems, we will use the power of sexual reproduction to breed pest and disease resistant food plants instead of poison immune pests. I will deal with this in greater detail in Chapter 16. If you're skeptical that we can grow quality fruit economically without using sprays, don't worry, I won't try to convince you. But what I will do is describe to you the technique so you will understand where it came from and why it works. Humans have been growing and eating the domestic apple for thousands of years. If you've ever seen the nasty, warped, and caterpillar-drilled fruit that grows in an abandoned orchard, you will have a visual image of why we are told sprays are necessary. The fruit on those trees hardly looks a, uh, as a good source of food. But somehow, in days of yore, people actually looked at those trees and considered them to be an essential part of the human diet. As a youngster, I grew up in apple country uh, of Massachusetts. My childhood home was only a mile and a half from L L Leominster, the birthplace of John Chapman. I'm going to pause there just because we had uh, Lee Reich on the air, and he said it wasn't worth growing apples east of the Mississippi. Lee, you're wrong. Anyway, I'm going to go back to this. Uh, better known as Johnny Appleseed. That's who Johnny Chapman was. This is the area of north-central Massachusetts uh, was home to a thriving fruit-growing industry when I was growing up. By the time I was large enough to hold an apple in my hand, I was working for William Flint of Apple Lane in Lancaster. Old Mr. Flint, as we called him, and ev evidently he must have been old because he was called Old Mr. Flint even when my father was a boy. I knew some old guys like that. They were always cool when I was growing up. That's old Mr. So-and-so. 
Wow, why do they call him that? I don't know. We always call him that when I was a kid. That's that's the guy you want to hang out with. Listen to this guy, right? Uh, Flynn had managed the farm at, and, and orchards at Apple Lane since 1939. In addition to milking 20 cows by hand, he had worked at the foundry all his life. He walked slowly and was bent from years of hard labor. Old Mr. Flint grew apples for people to eat, but mostly he was a juice grower. The Very Fine Juice Company was founded and operated a juice plant in Littleton, Massachusetts, a mere 20 miles from the Apple Lane Orchard. Mr. Flint grew the fruit for Very Fine uh, a certain way, and when I was a youngster, but he told me about how growing fruit in the old days still fresh in his memory. Back in the old days, he told me there were no sprays. He had not used any sprays himself until after World War II when the military surplus poisons were available cheap and manufactured at the Dow Chemical Plant five miles down the road. Back then, apple trees were only minimally pruned. In late winter, he told me the trees were pruned with spaces between the branches. Here's how you prune your trees, bud. Listen to this. So that a robin could fly through it and not touch its wings. But he said, if you could throw a cat through it and it couldn't catch a branch, then you cut too much. So there, there's what I was getting to. I'm going to read the rest of this, but I want to read that again. Here's how you prune large apple trees, large mature apple trees. So a robin could fly through it and not touch its wings, but not so open that if you threw a cat through the opening, he couldn't grab one side or the other as he flailed through the air. I wonder how you test that. Nobody throw a cat like that. That's mean. Visualize it, guys. Come on. I love cats. Anyway, that was the only pruning advice I was ever given as he watched me from his seat on the wagon pulled behind uh, his old red and gray Ford uh, 9N tractor. All the trees back in the day were standard-sized trees, not the dwarfs and semi-dwarfs so common today. After a few years of dog and shotgun protection to scare away deer so the young trees would have a chance to start to grow, they were left unprotected. And the deer did the lower pruning by browsing the lowest branches up to about five feet off the ground. In the spring, old Mr. Flint's cow-calf pears would graze in the orchard eating last autumn's fallen leaves, close cropping the fresh green grass and giving the whole orchard a shot of fertilizer. The cattle were then rotated out of the orchard. This was actually the key to the old-timers' apple scab protection program. Apple leaves from the previous year infected with a scab lesion would lie on the orchard floor, waiting until the conditions were ripe to multiply and spread. When the proper amount of heat and moisture occurred, the scab spore case would burst open when struck by a raindrop. The spores would then splash upward, finding a low-hanging apple bud just opening to land upon and infect. In the spring, having the cattle eat the leaves that had fallen off the previous fall, a significant portion of the potential infections were eliminated. By raising the lowest branches up to a five-foot height using the free and abundant pruning services provided by the deer, the likelihood of any scab spores from a fallen leaf finding a young-growing apple tip nearby would be significantly lowered anyway. In addition to this, the type of plant health management, restoration agriculture symptoms, promote adding a dense understory of marketable plants developed to also act as spore catchers. Old-time juicers would wait in the fall until around 50% of the fruit crop fell to the ground. 
the first the, the fruit apple the first apple fruit to fall from the trees are the ones that are the most significantly damaged by pests and disease. Once half the fruit was on the ground, the remaining crop hanging on the tree was harvested. One of the responsibilities of the picker was to inspect each apple as it was harvested. If there was evidence of insect damage, the picker would simply toss the apple to the ground. This negated, for the most part, having to have a packing shed with a conveyor belt and sorting tables to separate the good from the bad. In those days, rating was done by human beings as the fruit was picked and only the best went to the picking bucket. Back in the old days, the majority of the fruit was pressed. Apples for home use and fresh market sales were selected out of the stream of sound fruit during the uh, pressing process. Remember that prior to the 20th century, refrigeration did not exist at, 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 exist at most apple orchards. The only time that anybody ever got to drink fresh apple cider was when it was coming off the press. Some was stored in the spring house, but its life as a sweet apple cider uh, was measured in days. Most freshly squeezed apple juice was fermented. Apple juice was fermented with oxygen, quickly became infected with actobacteria, which lives in the gut of fruit flies. It proliferates in the ex uh, presence of oxygen and eventually turns the fresh juice into vinegar. This was perfect for the days before refrigeration because the vinegar was used to pickle. Uh, everything from green beans to beets. The majority of apple juice went into making cider, the alcoholic version, to the whole world except for the United States and Canada because we were, we were forced, uh, we forced them to. Cider is fermented apple juice, the alcoholic one. Al alcoholic apple cider was the North American drink in colonial times starting from the day the first European settlers harvested the first apple. Hard cider, as the alcoholic version is popularly called these days, was a great gift to humankind. It was self-stable, self almost indefinitely, and it lighted the spirit in an era of barely mechanized subsistence agriculture. As soon as the apples were all off the tree, the orchardists would then release the hogs to eat the ones on the ground, imagining the deloy of deliriously happy pigs eating and harvesting tons of apples. And remember that these pigs are removing additional pests and disease larvae and spores from the orchard system before being turned into bacon and chops. Pork chops are definitely my favorite form of orchard pest control management. So, you, I gave you how to trim, trim the tree, but your question let me share with people... A really awesome part of Mark Shepard's Restoration Agriculture. I really recommend this book. And I want you to think about how an apple orchard was managed less than 100 years ago versus how it's managed today. How much easier that was, how much more productive that was, how much more meaningful employment that it gave to people, how much less harm that it did, the fact that we got a meat yield out of it as well, the fact that no sprays, toxins, or poisons were used, pruning was easy, and the harvest was high. And the deer that are a pest to the average orchardist were an asset. Just saying, there are better ways to do things. As far as rooting the cuttings, generally speaking, if you're taking cuttings when the wood is in a softwood state, a little bit of stimulated with rooting hormone, you can root apple cuttings. They're not the easiest thing to root. Um, but we will have stuff about that in a plant propagation uh, pod, uh, course that we'll be doing at Permit Ethos. But what I would add is the best use of cuttings off of apple trees is this scion wood for grafting to rootstocks. And what you can do is take apple seed and grow your own rootstock. So you grow your own apple from seed, and when it gets big enough to where you can graft, you take your cutting from the apple you want to produce, and you graft it to your seed stock, and then you know plant that. And then you get a full-size rootstock 
uh, and a grafted apple variety uh, of, of whatever choosing you want. There's other ways to do it, and you can grow apples straight from seed, and you can get some pretty decent apples doing that too. Uh, but that's just one other way to look at it. But I've had people tell me that they prune their apples and they just stick all the prunings in the ground and half of them grow and produce apples eventually. So I think it depends on the time of the year, the climate you're in, how moist the ground stays, and making sure that the cutting gets a lot of shade until it, until it adapts and roots out. Let's take another call. Jack, Carl from Michigan. Just wondering if bees can handle... Uh, the chemicals and all the junk that's uh, around in the farmlands. Uh, basically, I have 10 acres, and I'm surrounded by farmlands, uh, soy and corn. Will bees be able to handle, handle the chemicals and the pesticides that are on that? And if they can, will they be able to, how much uh, of that will be brought back to the nest and transferred into the honey. Okay, Jack, thanks. Bye. I could have punted that to Michael Jordan, uh, the bee whisperer, but I feel between him and my bee mentor, uh, I'm learning about bees, and I think I can handle this question for you, and I think I can do a really great job. I think I'm going to make Michael uh, maybe proud if he listens to this one because it's really mostly what I've learned from him. First of all, understand that a bee is going to range out to get whatever it needs. It's going to fly out and find pollen and nectar and water. Those are its three big needs. And it will go about two miles. That's as far as a bee colony will generally work. So when you're looking at the direct impact on your bees, wherever you locate them, if you put it on a map with a scale and a compass, all right, not a compass like we use to find direction, but a compass that makes circles, and set that compass to two miles and draw a circle around that point where you put those bees, that's kind of about the limit that you can expect that those bees are going to come in direct contact with. So the other big thing is wind drift, we'll get to in a minute. All right, so that's, that's the bee's range. Because he's not going three miles, period. Now, I want you to think about it this way. Let's say you loved steaks, okay? And I put steaks all over around your house. And I had some magic technology that a steak didn't go bad it stayed fresh and juicy for a long time just sitting out in the open and i had you know sirloins and t-bones and ribeyes all over the place and you decided since free steak was out there you would just gather up the steaks and then you would put them in your your chest freezer so that they would last even longer and you'd keep your freezer stocked so whenever you wanted a steak there'd be one there for you and you knew that the steaks weren't there all year round so you stored some up Now you're a bee. The stored steaks are honey, and the steaks out in the field are the pollen and the nectar. Got that? Okay. This is my own analogy, by the way, from Mike's teaching. This is not Mike's analogy. I bet you he uses it. Watch this. So now I'm also harvesting steaks and eating them right away as nectar and pollen, and then I'm storing some as honey. So today I might need some ribeyes. And I go out and I get some ribeyes. And while I'm out there, I get like, oh, I'll grab a T-bone and a New York strip. Uh, and why not one filet? And I shove them into my deep freezer and I cook my, my ribeye. And I'm all happy. Now, if those were all around me, and there were lots of them all the way out to two miles, but there were plenty within like a 100 yards, how often do you think I'd walk two miles just to get one of those steaks? I wouldn't, 
But if I really, really, really liked ribeyes, and they were a few hundred yards out, and it was like chuck steak was the only thing around within a couple feet, I might use some of the chuck steak, but I might walk out there to get the ribeyes. Right? So I'll range further, both because I need to, and because things that I prefer are further out. That's how bees are. But if all the best stuff is right here, I ain't going nowhere. If the, if the filet mignon, the ribeye, the New York strip, and the porterhouse are 50 feet from my house, I might go further than that, but I ain't going there for a steak. And I damn sure ain't getting in my car and driving 10 miles down to Kroger to buy one when they're floating around out there. This is your bees, how they view honey and nectar and pollen and water. Okay, What I'm saying is if you improve your 10 acres to give your bees everything they can want and more, they're not going to spend very much time on any other piece of property. They'll still range out on occasion because something out there is really attractive to them, but they're not going to be really attracted to corn and beans. So if you make sure they have a good, fresh, clean water supply and good blooming throughout the season and good fodder crops, then you've got a halfway beat, especially if you do it during the time when beans are in flower and when corn is in tassel. I've always thought that corn would not be attractive to bees, but I've witnessed bees harvesting pollen off corn tassels. So they will range out to that atrazine-soaked corn, and they will range out to those soybeans because they want it, because it's a flower, and they like bean flowers, believe it or not, they do. So you need to make sure that they have an abundance at those times. And you can figure out that pretty easy. When does the corn go to tassel? When do the beans go to flower? And if you planted a few beds of buckwheat and timed like four and a half weeks from when that buckwheat went on the ground and when the corn's in tassel and the beans are in flower, that buckwheat's going to be in full-on badass flower right at the time that those beans are. And it's like you just gave them a bacon-wrapped, already-cooked filet And they ain't gonna fly out for the ground chuck now. Right? So that's, that's, that's a way to look at this is to provide them as much as you can. Plant lots of clover, plant sunflower, plant a, a wide variety of things your bees can use. Right? Right around where there are things and spread out all over the place. And if you find anything native on your property that you don't think is very useful, make sure you research whether or not It's good bee fodder. I've got tons of yapon growing in one back corner. And then back in the forest, back behind my land, there's a bunch of yapon holly. Yapon's bitter. It doesn't taste good. You know, Marjorie Wildcraft, I think, fed too much to a rabbit one time and it killed it. Uh, it's, it's not something people are like, yay, yapon. But it turns out yapon flowers make great honey and bees love it. So I was going to prune all of this stuff off of the undergrowth of some of these trees. And then when I got bees and I said, what is this? And Mike said, that's yapon holly. And they like that. And then I looked it up, and Yapon honey is like sells at a premium. I'm like, well, great, I'm going to leave that there. So make sure you don't take away anything that's naturally growing that they like and, and work on providing them with what they need and then feed your bees as well. So that mitigates the whole thing about the bees leaving your property. Then the other thing you need to look at, this is good permaculture design anyway. From a standpoint of your sector analysis, prevailing winds in the summer and winter and energy blocking and things like that. But you need to also look at it. What are the peak times that these people spray? And what, are, what is your, your dominant wind at the time these people spray? And with 10 acres, you got lots of room for buffer. On the property line facing the dominant wind during the spray times, 
plant buffer crops that are primarily ornamental that you're not really using for your own personal use um, that will buffer and block the spray and take the spray up and let it drop there and be filtered through biological processes. So, you know, you could do something simple like poplar trees. You know, maybe a multi-tiered edge. So on that edge, you've got poplar and maybe some kind of a low-growing evergreen uh, and then some kind of a shrub. And then come back a bit from that property line before you put in something that's more productive. And that'll create a wind drift buffer from the sprays. Now, the other thing is, what do you mean by you're in the middle of farm country? I've seen people that say this, and you go out and you look at their land, and they're like an island surrounded by four mega farms. And then sometimes they're like in an area and like out somewhere that way over there, there's a farm, and then there's kind of one there, and there's kind of one there. But there's a lot of buffer between them. They're not right bordered on farmland. If you're in that case and you take good care of your land, you've got to be. You really do. I mean, we can't protect our bees from everything, right? They will range out. They will cruise. Uh, that's what they do. And some of them will go out there just to see what's out there, even if they have some of what they really want here, because they're, they're industrious. They're always saying, like, I can't count on this stuff being here next week. We need to be finding new sources. So they do that. But you can give them so much of what they need. And what Michael's taught me is that a 5-foot by 10-foot bed of full-on flowered something like clover or buckwheat gives one hive of bees pretty much all that it needs while it's in flower. So if you had three beds to one hive of five foot by ten foot and you planted buckwheat from as early in the year as you can plant it, right, and then two weeks later plant the next bed and two weeks later plant the next bed, by the time the first bed's at six weeks, it's in full-on ass-kicking flower, And then a couple weeks later, it's starting to degrade. And that second bed is looking awesome. And you went in there and just threw down a bunch more buckwheat and then just cut your buckwheat with a rice knife. And you could either feed that as fodder to your chickens or if you don't have chickens or whatever to put over it, just cut it with a rice knife and drop it to the ground as mulch on top of your next crop. That crop will go right up through there and do it again and do it again and do it again. And you could do that to provide supplemental fodder for your bees while you develop the rest of your property. And by the time you don't really need to be doing buckwheat like that anymore, those beds are going to be badass awesome. And as you get toward, you know, you could you could do that, and one of those beds could turn into cowpeas. Now you've got another fodder crop, plus that's another bee crop. They like that. You can you get clover growing. Uh, clover is an awesome thing for your bees. You start taking approaches like that, plant lots of sunflowers. If you have, like, a big area where you know sunflower will do well, Go get yourself a sack of black oil sunflower, like for bird food, and just use that as cover crop. That's so cool. Like I got, I have to do a video, guys. I've got like a sunflower forest in the area we mulch for a micro food forest, and I'm just letting them grow. They're all volunteers from bird food, um, and they grow nice sunflowers uh, that are about the size, you know, a little bit bigger than a, than a coffee cup round, and they turn into a seed, and you just cut the heads off and throw them to the chickens, and then you. Chop down the, the, the sunflower and you mulch that, and it has a huge root system that contributes to the, the soil fauna. It's awesome. So that's the approach I would take. Can they handle it? It all it depends on how good of an environment you provide for them. That's that's really what it depends on. Um, that's the best I can do. Mike, if you listen today, I'd love you to chime in and, and add to it. Uh, let's take one more and wrap up for today. 
Hey, Jack. This is uh, Dave from Idaho. I've got a question for John Pugliano. I know he's always begging for questions. I've been dealing with this for a couple of weeks now. Um, what I want to do is cash out my 401k. I have been told by the uh, brokerage account holder that uh, I cannot do that. Uh, so I'm wondering how I should go forward and if there's any other avenues I could pursue for cashing out my 401k. Here's the details. I'm employed with a large corporation for the last 13 years. Still employed with them. have no plans of leaving uh, anytime soon. However, I'm not happy with the investment options that are offered within the account. The account is uh, with Wells Fargo. I am willing to pay the taxes that I owe and the 10% penalty, but I've been told that I, there is no way for me to cash out or roll over uh, my 401k. I could claim a hardship, uh, but it requires documentation, and I'm not in that situation, and it would require uh, me to live, you know, make something up that I'm not willing to do. Uh, when I signed up for the account 13 years ago, uh, it was my understanding that uh, I could cash it out uh, without the lengthy process of trying to document any kind of a uh, hardship. Anyway, I uh, just wondered if there's anything John Pugliano could give me for some advice going forward. I uh, love the show. Thanks for all you do. As you can see, I'm stepping in front of John twice today, but there's a reason, because I know the answer is you're screwed. You're screwed. You're not getting your money out. 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 It's not happening. Um, and I know you're sitting there thinking, because I heard you say it, I, I could have sworn, when I opened up this account 13 years ago, that they told me I could get my money out of here. It would cost me interest and penalties, but that I could get it. I could have sworn they said that. They probably did. Probably did. See, over the last 10 years, this has been changed in almost every employer-provided 401k plan on planet Earth, certainly in the United States of America, which is the only place they actually exist as 401ks because it's part of IRIS code. So every 401k in, in U.S. business. There's a lot of changes that have been made, like removal of the cash option. This is another one. I remember distinctly being an employer and running a company and going through the plans and picking out one for my employees and going, they could take their money out of this, right? Oh, yeah, of course. It would be foolish to do, but, you know, they could do it if they want to or they need to or whatever. Yeah, they pay interest and penalties. Like, yeah, I know that, Ask Clown. Just, just can they? Yeah, yeah, okay. Cash option? Yeah, yeah, we have to do that. Okay, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, in 2014, there's almost no cash options, and I don't know hardly of anybody with a 401K that's employer-provided any longer where they can cash out. This is why I guess people think I don't like IRAs because I hate 401ks. I hate 401ks because you don't get to decide what happens to your money. Your employer and the plan manager does. One day they can just decide, we don't want this fund in here anymore. We're going to replace it with something else. And they may grandfather you into that fund or they may even make a trade on your behalf to the equivalent fund that's been brought in. But you won't be contributing to the old one anymore one way or the other. Usually they grandfather. So you have fund XYZ, and it's in there, and they decide they don't want it anymore. And you liked it. You have money in there. You got ten grand in it. So what happens is you end up holding ten grand in fund XYZ. If you ever sell it, you can never buy it back. Right? And they bring in uh, fund ABC. 
And what will happen most of the time is unless you specifically change something, the money you had allocated to XYZ starts going to ABC. Now, they'll tell you in a fine print thing that will pop up when you log in, you click I accept, and then it happens, right? Or you'll just stop having that contribution. Sometimes they grandfather it, and your contribution keeps going to the old fund, but you can't add to it or whatever. It's it's all up to them. It's all up to them on how they do it. Uh, I was I had a cash option. I was I'm pretty sure there was a cash option in here, but we removed it because it wasn't a good investment. Well, wait a minute. Who says it's not a good investment? The government and uh, the uh, financial liar that administers our plan. And, we, you know, there's no such thing as a perfectly safe investment. And this bond pays better than cash. So we just got rid of that for you. Okay, fine. I've had enough. I don't like the choices I have anymore. I want my money. Can't have it. I want my money. Can't have it. You got a hardship? Can you prove it? Then we got to give it to you because the law says. Otherwise, we make the rules. It's our plan, not your plan. You can't have it. Your money's stuck. Your money's stuck. Because you put it somewhere where someone else had control over it. And someone changed the rules between the time you made the agreement and now and only got your tacit, uninformed approval to do so. Yay, government. Yay, corporate America. Yay, 401k. And Dave Ramsey keeps telling you to max out your 401k now, doesn't he? Nonsense. What would I do if I were you? Um, I might make an appointment with human resources and say that you have no intention of leaving right now and you're not trying to make waves, but you are seriously considering your future employment in, in totality because they don't think that you are entitled to your own money. I might if I was that. I would. I'd probably go down there and say, I'm really, I'd probably just go down there and say, oh, dude, I'm really thinking about getting a new job over this. I'm wondering if you guys are going to take that into consideration at all. But I'm me. You know, I'm the guy that when I wanted a new job, I just would go get one. And I know it doesn't work that way for everybody. So, you know, I guess that I, I can't advise you to do that. I'm not advising you to do that. That's, that's my attitude. I've always been a bulldozer, right? You know, like it? Fine. I'm out of here. I'll go do it somewhere else. You can't quit. Oh, you quit. I mean, that's, that's how I've always been. This is the longest I've ever held a job is employing myself at the Survival Podcast. I never held any other job for six years. I never ran a company for six years. I got bored. I want to go to something else, something more fun. Right? So I can't really advise you to be like me. Most people can't be that way. Um, your money's stuck. The best advice I can give you is immediately quit contributing to the plan and start taking that money and building up a store of value and investment somewhere else. And think long and hard before you tax defer it. I would also tell you to look at it this way. You're probably well employed. You're probably play, paying a tax, you know, a real tax rate of about 15%. That's where most, you know, middle income, upper middle income Americans are. Their, their real effective tax rate is 15 to 18%. Not a third, like everybody says it is. Okay. That's after all the deductions and everything like that. Yeah, taking the distribution, if it's sizable, might push you up into the 30 percentile or something like that. But let's let's call it 15% taxes you'd have to pay on this money. Uh, by the time it's all said and done with, when you file with your account and take every single deduction you can, 15%. And you're going to pay 10% penalty, right? So it's 25%. I don't like that the government has taken 
the initiative to work fascistly with the financial corporations behind the scenes without passing any laws or rules and simply everybody rubbed each other's elbows and took away the cash option and put in the bond option for government U.S. savings bonds. I don't like that. But the, the pragmatist in me will tell you this. The U.S. government bond is as good as cash. And over the long term, it's probably better because it probably will at least keep pace with the inflation that they're honest about. Okay? Got that? It's, it's better than a 0.25% cash interest. It is a better investment. I don't know that it's a better safe haven, but it's a better investment. And the day that a government bond is worthless, so is your cash. Got that? Okay. So odds are that if you took your money out and took control of your investments, you're not going to make a 25% return this year on your money. You're probably not. Okay. So if all you did was move to a bond fund, yield 2.5%, not lose 25%, it would be just like taking your money under your own control and getting a 27.5% return, except it's still locked in a tax-deferred account. So if nothing else, if you're just not happy with the investment options, you could go to the bond options. And the other thing I would say is really research those those investment options and, and make sure that there's not some good upside opportunity there because this market has more to go up before it comes down. But keep in mind that your bonds are now your safe haven option. I don't like it, but it's the truth. Because the truth is the only way that you're getting your money out of your plan now is to leave your employment. And I don't advise that for most people. I really don't. And this is why I hate 401ks. And when everybody thinks I'm just anti-all-retirement account and, and, and doesn't understand that it's about 401ks, this is why. This is why. This is why I think that most people would be better off ceasing their contributions to a 401k and contributing to an IRA. But Jack, you said that you can only contribute $5,500 to an individual IRA if it's outside of your employment before you reach a cap, and you can't go any higher than that. Fine. Then figure out how much you have to contribute and adjust your 401k contribution so that you're maximizing your individual retirement account contribution. Huh? Come on, it's easy. Let's say you're going to contribute. You, you are going to save. You're going to be an industrious little beaver. And you're going to save $10,000 this year. Instead of putting $10,000 in your retirement account at work, your 401k, God, please take the Roth option. All right? Do the math and go, that's $4,500. I make X dollars a week. I need to do this percentage to come out to $4,500 a year and put $4,500 a year into the 401k and $5,500. $100 a year, put your big boy pants on, stand up, take responsibility for your own thing, and create you know an automatic draft out of your bank account to do the same thing coming out of your paycheck does, put the balance into an individual retirement account where you have full control. Also do the Roth option when you do that. And if you have more money to save than that, and hopefully you do, put it into whatever kind of non-tax deferred or non-tax exempt savings you can. Don't ever... Put all your savings in a 401k. Take as much control of your money as possible. I'm sorry, man. You're hosed. Now, somebody's going to say, you could take a loan. Bad idea. Bad idea. I'm not even going to entertain it, especially in this situation. Terrible idea. I'd say you got to make the best of what you can. 
But this might be a way to be a positive influence without being all spiteful about it. Immediately cease contributions to your 401k. It sounds like you work for a, a somewhat larger company. Um, file a formal complaint, I guess is what you would call it. Whatever your company would be best um, politically, right? Specifically saying that you have come to determine that it's impossible for you to take your own money. You think this is wrong. You're not going to make a big stink about it. Be very professional. But you've ceased all contributions to your 401k. You will never contribute to the 401k plan again because they don't respect your right to take control of your own money. You would like the company to seriously consider changing this. And then you can probably fold it all up nice like you're going to submit it and take it out in your backyard and put it into a fire and chant some Indian words over it because it'll do just as good and it'll be good, you know, cleansing personal therapy for you or actually file it. But again, I don't think it'll work. Um, I don't think you have a, I don't think you have a, anything you can do about this. You agreed to it when you signed up to it this way. And since you don't want to leave your job, you're stuck with it. And again, folks, think long and hard before you max out that 401k. I basically say it this way with 401ks. Unless it's just to defer more money, like you've maxed out your contributions and you want to do more, don't do a 401k. And if you do do it, you, you do it with the balance that I just talked about. And the other thing that I would say is that if you're going to do it, then do it for a reason. So if, you're, if your employer is doing a dollar-for-dollar dollar match up to 3%, that's 100% return. And, and I can see the case. Well, I'm going to do 3% and get the match. Fine. Take control of the rest of your retirement individually. Not all your retirement has to be tax-deferred. Really? That's horrible. Why would you not tax? Because it's nice to have control of your money, and some people don't want to wait till they're 59 and a half to semi-retire. Some people want to retire, semi-retire when they're 45 or 39 and a half. And you don't know what level of success you'll have if you give yourself half an opportunity to have it. And just remember that all of that money is highly subject to government oversight, and it will be some of the first money they go after in various ways when their paradigm begins to crumble, and that crumbling has already begun, and their fingers are already going into the retirement pie. And they're looking at it, and they're thinking, how do we do this without having them kill us? Because it's the only reason they haven't stolen your money yet. Because they're re legitimately afraid if they go do this, The people of this country will drag them out of their clown house seats into the streets of D.C. and string them up from the nearest appropriate monument. They're they know they can't just do it. So they're being very shifty, and they're doing this very slowly and very methodically, but they are going to dig their hands back into that money that they promised not to touch. Exactly how, when, and where, I don't know. I, again, I think that most of it will be grandfathered. They're going to start pushing the new money into these vehicles. And again, if they can funnel enough of it into debt instruments like bonds, which even I, who knows the game, is telling you that's your only play if you don't like the stock options, is to go the bond option, right? And so it works. They don't care. They don't care if they get your money in the form of a U.S. bond or a tax dollar. To them, it's the same thing. I know that makes no sense to you. It's like me telling you, uh, me loaning you money is just as good as me giving you money. <sighs> that makes no sense to you. But if you can print money to pay me back with, and it costs me when you print the money, not you when you print the money, then it makes perfect sense. But you'd have to be the government for that. You and I, folks, we're not the government. 
We're the people that are supposed to be represented by government, but we're not. That's because you, if you listen to this show and other things like it, you are the minority of Americans. Never forget that. You are the people that think for yourselves. You are the people that make your own choices. You are the people that know the difference between your circle of influence and your circle of concern. And therefore, you have a much larger circle of influence than most people do. But you are the minority of people in this country. Your government may not represent you, but it represents most of your neighbors fairly well for right now. So you have to be smarter. You have to build sustainability and reliability into your life. You have to be prepared as a modern survivalist to survive modern disasters, not Hollywood apocalypses. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.